talk about the kingship of Christ, Christ as king. We'll use Psalm 2 as our launching point. Psalm 2. And uh, before I read, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would again, by your spirit, speak to us through the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have prayed through your son, Jesus Christ. Thy word is truth. Sanctify us, we pray, by the truth. We ask, Lord, for your blessing on us all. Help us, Lord, to understand the things that are written. And may, Lord, we find them applied to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 2, starting at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Well, uh, it's good to be back uh, among you, and thank you for praying for me uh, during my uh, two weeks off. I really do appreciate uh, your prayers for me. And uh, we come back now to where we left off uh, three Sundays ago, and that is we were talking about the three offices of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Bible teaches. Uh, Christ we first looked at as a prophet, and then secondly as a priest, and then tonight we're going to talk about Christ as king. Now, what does it mean for Christ to have these three offices? Well, in the Old Testament, the people of God were ministered unto by various officers in the church and in the state of Israel. The uh, first office that we saw was that of prophet. Now, when we hear the word prophet, a lot of times people think that he was just somebody that always told the future. Now, that is certainly an aspect of what a prophet did, 
But really, his first job was to bring new revelation from God to the people of God. That is, Isaiah would uh, preach or write, and what they wrote, they did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it was given to the people as the word of God. Now, they did oftentimes tell of things pertaining to the future. Sometimes it was in the future near to them, sometimes in the future far from them. But one of the things they were always doing was they were always proclaiming the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the primary mission of the prophets in the Old Testament, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, you pick your favorite prophet, their primary job was to point the people of God ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, for example, Jesus even said to the Pharisees, you'll remember, you search the scriptures. Now, in Jesus' day, the scriptures would have been everything from Genesis to the book of Malachi, which would have included the prophets. And he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. He said, they speak of me. So that the, the prophets spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was the prophets. Now, the priests were those who were of the lineage of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. Now, the priest's job primarily was to perform the acts and rites of sacrifice. Okay? Their job primarily was to offer the atoning sacrifices at the altar. And they would uh, often place their hands on the head of a bull or a goat or a lamb, and they would confess the sins of Israel over that animal. And having confessed the sins of Israel over the animal, they would then sacrifice that animal. They would pour out the blood of that animal at the base of the altar. They would prepare the altar, excuse me, they would prepare the sacrifice according to the law. There are various types of sacrifices. We won't get into all the types of sacrifices tonight but they would do so according to the type of sacrifice it was, and then they would offer it on the altar. Here again, what was the primary role of the priest? The priest here were showing the people of God that we needed an atoning sacrifice. Now, every worshiper in Israel knew a couple of truths as they observed these rites at the temple. Number one, they knew in their conscience that these sacrifices in and of themselves, could not obtain the forgiveness of sins that they themselves needed. Why would God then have these sacrifices done then? He did command them to be done. Why have all these animal sacrifices if even in the days of the Old Testament, the people knew that there was something else needed? Because these sacrifices, again, just like the prophet was pointing to Christ, these Animal sacrifices were pointing to the atoning work that Jesus would do for us on the cross. This is why, for example, when Jesus first appears on the scene, what's the first thing John the Baptist says? Behold, what? The Lamb of God. Now, boys and girls, why would John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God? Well, because he was the one that was going to offer himself up for the sins of God's people. Remember, when Mary was to conceive in her womb by the Holy Spirit as a virgin, um, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, what 
was Joseph told? You shall name him Jesus. Why? He shall, he shall save his people from their sins. How will he do that? He will do that by becoming a priest who offers himself up because animal sacrifices cannot atone for the sins of humanity. It would require the sacrifice of one who himself was a man. That's why it was necessary that God become man in order for uh, our sins to be truly forgiven. So the prophets pointed to Christ through their preaching. The priests pointed to Christ through the sacrifices. But also God raised up the third office of a king. Now you'll remember in the days of Samuel that the people wanted a king. And it was part of God's plan to give them a king. But the problem was is that the people wanted a king that was like the kings of the other nations, you'll remember. And this is what was such a disappointment to Samuel and to the Lord himself. They wanted somebody who would politically look good in the chariot. And so Saul was chosen. But you know the story. Saul turned out to be unfaithful to the Lord. And so the Lord had to remove Saul and put in his place a man who had a heart for God. And that, of course, you know is David. And after David is Solomon. And so begins the Davidic line. This is important because here again, God had promised all the way back, even in the book of Genesis, that God would raise up a king from the tribe of Judah. David happens to be from what tribe? He's from the tribe of Judah. And so the Jews had a long expectation that the king, the Messiah, that would come and restore all things and make all things new again, including the new heavens and the new earth, would come by way of the Davidic line. It would be a descendant of David. Do you remember when the children, when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, do you remember how the children were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David? And you remember how upset the Pharisees got? Why did the Pharisees get so upset at children singing Hosannas to Jesus and calling him the son of David? Because the reason they got so upset was because they were attributing messianic, a messianic title to Jesus as the son of David. They were saying that Jesus is the greater David. He is the king who we have been long waiting for. So let's look at Psalm 2 tonight. Here's a psalm, and this is one of, I could have picked a few or more, a handful of psalms to talk about the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the kingship uh, of Jesus is seen in a variety of places. If you want on your own, look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 sometime, uh, because that's a wonderful chapter where God promises David that somebody from his th lineage would always sit upon the throne. And that, we know, was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at the context here of Psalm 2 a little bit, and then I want to talk more specifically and thematically about how Jesus is king, and what does that mean, and what is the significance of Christ's kingship. Now, I like to think of this psalm almost 
like a play or a Greek play. Um, and, and, and if you've ever read any of the Greek plays, it's a long time since I did so, but you remember there's this little thing they call the chorus. And the chorus comes on stage and they kind of narrate the, the, the play for you a little bit and tell you what's going on. And so when we start Psalm 2 here, you have this chorus, if you will, kind of setting the table in the opening scene. And there are several scenes in this psalm. We move from one scene to another to another. And then at the end, the chorus comes back in and, it, and, it, and they give you the application here. So what are they saying here in the beginning? They're saying, why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together and against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. So in this opening scene, you see that it's almost, if you will, a, a giant conference room. You imagine maybe a long table and all the kings of all the surrounding nations uh, that surround Israel are at this table. It's a mini UN going on here. And, but this is an angry meeting of the UN. They're upset and they're mad. And what are they angry about? Well, they're angry because of the Davidic monarchy. And they want to get out from under the rule of the Lord. And notice there in verse 2, and his anointed. Now, who is the anointed? Well, the anointed, of course, is the Messiah. In case you didn't know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ, that is his title. Christ means the anointed one. Um, and that was a reference to the Messiah. So they're saying here, we want to get out from under the Lord. The world wants nothing to do with the world. I mean, the, with the Lord. The, the world is in rebellion against God. And this is the way it's been since the fall. The world has been at enmity against the Lord. And they say, let's tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. Let's get out from under, let's conspire together and get out from under the rule of God. And then we move in verses 4 through 6 to the second scene. What's the second scene? We move from the conference room in verses 1 through 3. Then you move up, boys and girls, to another room where there's a greater power and a greater majesty than all the kings of the earth gathered together. And that is the court of heaven. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Who's the them? It's all the kings down on earth that are having this meeting together. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, and then this is the Lord speaking here, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That is, the Lord here is saying, I have put on the throne my king. Now, who is this king? Well, in its original context, it would have been the Davidic monarchy. It would have been David and his descendants. But who do we know ultimately this psalm is pointing to? We know ultimately it is pointing to Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the king that we have been waiting for. He is, you know, have you ever wondered why when you begin to read, you know, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, and, and this comes up every Christmas, why is, 
why is it that we find so much emphasis in those two Gospels on the genealogy of Jesus? Well, one of the reasons for that is because that Matthew and Luke are both trying to show you that Jesus is the son of David. And that's why they go, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and on and on from generation to generation, showing you that Jesus is the culmination of the line of David. Now, obviously, in Joseph and Mary's day, the line of David had gone almost into obscurity, uh, as far as men could see. Uh, you know, men didn't know, you know necessarily who Joseph and, and Mary were, but the Lord knew that they were descendants of David and that uh, the Lord used them as the parents. Mary is a biological parent. Joseph is a legal father, as Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. But anyway, so we know that this is ultimately pointing us to Christ. And look at verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. And now this is the Son speaking. He said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. So the Father is saying to the Son, God the Father, saying to God the Son, you are my Son, I have begotten you, I have ordained you to the office of king. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And when was this fulfilled? Well, this was fulfilled after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and after his resurrection. Remember, after Jesus goes to the cross, He's bodily raised up on the third day according to the scriptures. And what does he tell his disciples before he goes into heaven? Matthew chapter 28, he says, All power and authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. What he's telling his disciples is, This which was spoken in Psalm 2 has now been fulfilled in your hearing. All power and authority has been given to me by way of my resurrection, my vindication, the Father now is giving me all authority that has belonged to him in heaven and on earth. And that's the context for the Great Commission. That's the reason we go out to the world uh, to bring the gospel, is to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And uh, so anyway, and then you get to the end of the psalm. And what, what is the application here? Well, the application is what? is in light of the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, all power and authority has been given to him, the kings of the earth are to, quote, verse 10, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. So what is the call here? The call is for the kings of the earth and the judges to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't rebel against his easy yoke and his light burden, but give yourself to him as your Lord and Savior. It says, do homage. If you grew up on the old King James, you know that verse 12, it reads, kiss the son, they say, that his wrath uh, may not be kindled lest you perish in the way. And so that's the application, is that we are to learn uh, that we should give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ is King. Now, we've been looking at a, a theologian named Wilhelmus Abrockel, who was a Dutch theologian of the 17th century, and we're going to uh, borrow a little bit from him tonight as well. And let's talk thematically about Jesus Christ as King. What is he King of? Well, first of all, Christ is King over the creation. 
Uh, he is the king over everything. First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11 reads like this. Yours, Lord, are greatness and might, majesty, victory, and splendor for all in heaven and on earth. Listen to this. All in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is kingship, he says. You are exalted as head over all. And of course, this applies, we know, in the New Covenant context to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is king over everything. There's not one square inch of this planet that doesn't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is under his authority. You know, many, we call them Islamic nations, and from our perspective they are, but we need to realize they still belong to Christ. And Christ is bringing his gospel to these nations that are quote-unquote closed nations. By closed, I mean that legally Christianity is not right now allowed in there. But that is not going to stop the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ has sent his spirit into the world, and he is building his church, and he is going to build it all over the world. So they're going to be, when you get to heaven, and everything is said and done, you're going to meet people from Saudi Arabia, you're going, to meet, you're going to meet hundreds of thousands of people from the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. Uh, you're going to meet people from Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, all over the world. You are going to meet people from every tribe and tongue. The, it, the, um, John tells us in Revelation 7 that the the people gathered before the great white throne on the final day is innumerable, he said. There will be so many people before that throne. And you say, man, pastor, that seems almost impossible. Um, Listen, the Lord Lord is not as impatient as we are. Um, You know, the Lord... A thousand years, Peter says a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And when you think about it, the Lord Jesus Christ has been reigning for, on the throne for two days. <laughs> if you count a day as a thousand years, Christ has been on the throne from God's perspective for about what seems like two days. So in, in a way, we don't know how far, you know, or how long the Lord will tarry. He, he may indeed, maybe another 2,000 years. Um, you know, it, it's always common, I think, for people to think they live in the age that is most important. You know, I mean, if you read people a thousand years ago, you know, they were sure that Christ would return in AD 1000. You know, they were, they were, they were certain. You know, Martin Luther felt, you know, even great men can sometimes be this way. You know, Luther was sure that what happened in the Protestant Reformation was this prelude to the coming of the kingdom very soon. We have to realize that the Lord is building his church. Christ is reigning, and he is going to fulfill all his promises. And and even if it doesn't look, from our perspective, like that could be humanly possible, you know, how, how in the world is Christianity going to become a great religion in Saudi Arabia thing. That seems, from our perspective, an impossibility. But Christ is king. 
He is Lord. He, he governs everything. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has set his throne in heaven. His dominion extends over all. We are told in the book of Proverbs that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord and the Lord directs that heart of the king in any direction that he wants. There was a king named Cyrus in the days um, after Isaiah and Isaiah spoke of a king and this king was not a, 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 a king of Israel. He was a pagan king and yet the Lord said that this king Cyrus would be the one to give the decree that God's people would go back to the land of Israel and rebuild the temple. And that is, in fact, what indeed happened, um, is the people of God went back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, not only is Christ king over all creation, uh, but he also uh, is king over his church. Oh, I forgot to mention that Christ told no one less than Pilate that he was a king. You know, uh, Pilate asked him, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus affirmed it. He said, it is as you say. Uh, but he said that my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, if, if it were, my people would be fighting like a military uh, army would be. But my kingdom grows a different way. But Christ is king over the church as well, Abrockle notes. He has a special rule over his own people. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Paul writes this, He has put all things beneath his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Christ is the head of all things in order that uh, all things serve for the purposes ultimately of the good of God's people and the glory of his name. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, the apostle said, Let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has exalted him as Lord. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand, speaking of Christ, as a leader and savior to grant Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. Um, we could go. We could go on. There are three ways a brockle says, and I, I'm going to alliterate them. I changed a little bit of the language from a brockle to make it easier for you. Three ways in which Christ is king over the church. Three ways that Christ exercises that kingship. The first, they all begin with G. The first is gathering. Christ gathers all those people from all over the world who will become a part of His church by His Spirit. He changes men and women, boys and girls' lives. He changes their hearts. He's changed your hearts. He changed mine in college. I wasn't looking for the Lord, and the Lord met me and, uh, you know, changed my life and, and, and brought me into the church. And that's what the Lord does. He, he builds uh, his church by spiritually changing people's lives, bringing them out under the from the power of darkness and sin, bringing them into his marvelous light, his kingdom. So he gathers the church by way of his kingship. Number two, he exercises his kingship in guarding the church. He gathers the church. Secondly, he guards the church. Um, in Psalm 72, we read of how the Lord rules from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. 
And then after that exaltation of his kingship, the psalmist says in verse 9, may his foes, that is, boys and girls, the enemies of God, may his foes kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring tribute and the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. May all kings bow before him. All nations serve him. And then it says he rescues the poor when they cry out. God guards his people who are oppressed. You know, we have brothers and sisters in North Korea who live in concentration camps. Did you know that there are children who have never known life outside of a concentration camp? They actually were, they actually were born in the concentration camp. They were, they were already in utero, and their mother was arrested and put in the camp. And there are even some children who have never known life outside the barbed wire. And yet, some have suspected that the largest concentration of Christians is inside those concentration camps in North Korea. That God is building his church, delivering those who are oppressed, and saving them, bringing them to a knowledge of the Lord. Listen to what the psalmist says. He shows pity to the needy and the poor and saves the lives of the poor from extortion and violence. He redeems them, for precious is their blood in his sight. So the Lord is concerned about his people, often who are harassed and persecuted. If you study the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, one of the things that you will see is they have not had a lot of the blessings you and I have had. We gather here with civil and civic peace. We, we gather here without fear. Uh, but for much of the church's history, uh, believers have not always known that. But the Lord, through it all, guarded the church. You know, think about how Rome threw the full weight of its might and it, its empire against the church in the early days. There were 10 outbreaks of serious persecution in the Roman, during the Roman Empire. If you look at the various emperors, and, and Diocletian being one of the worst, but there, there were others. Nero was bad. Um, certain emperors brought about persecutions. There were 10 in particular against the church. And yet what happened? Where's the Roman Empire today? It's gone, just like Daniel said it would. Remember the great statue that of all the, you know, the head of gold, the chest of bronze representing these empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Greco Empire, and then the Roman Empire being at the feet. And what happens to that statue in Daniel's vision? It collapses and it turns to dust and the dust blows away. And, and it came about just as God said, the Roman Empire is gone. You can go and look at the ruins of it, you know. But where's Christ's empire? Still growing, still around, still making its way around the world. Because Christ is king. And he is building his church. And Jesus has said the gates of hell will not prevail. And though the world and the devil throw everything they can against the church, and our people suffer, and even sometimes suffer even to the point of martyrdom, and yet, what did Tertullian say? One of the church fathers, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs is what? The seed of the church. 
the more oppression, the more martyrdom, the more the bloodshed, the more the church kept growing as people. What, what happened when people saw Stephen in the book of Acts martyred? The church continued to grow. So the Lord gathers his church. He guards his church. And then thirdly, Christ is king. He governs his church. Now, how does Jesus Christ govern you and me in the church? Well, he governs by his spirit through the Bible, through the word. This is the primary means that God uses. Um, Isaiah in chapter 33 says this, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. You hear that? Judge, lawgiver, king. Ever heard of the legislative branch? The executive branch? The judicial branch? All three branches are found in who? In the Lord. The Lord is our judge. That's the judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver. That's the legislative branch. The Lord is our king. That's the executive branch. It is he, the Lord, who will save us, says Isaiah. The whole government of the church is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ governs by way of his spirit. Now this is amazing when you think about it because Jesus as king and governor is like no other king or governor in this world. Kings and governors in this world ask you to fight for them and die for them. The church is the only institution in the earth where the head of that institution has died for the members of the body. The church is the only organization in the world where the head of that organization laid down his life for the body in order that we could have eternal life. Abrakel speaks about how excellent Jesus Christ is as king. Have you ever thought about the excellency of Jesus Christ? Listen to these comparisons that Abrakel makes. He says, first of all, earthly kings have nothing within themselves to make them glorious. That is, their, their power is a derived power. But Christ has glory within himself as God. He has the, in John chapter 17, verse 5, we are told that Christ had glory with the Father before the world was. Before God ever said, let there be light, what was going on in the universe? If you can call it a universe, the universe didn't exist, but you know what I mean. Well, there was the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son, Christ, was with the Father. He had a glory even before the creation. Hebrews chapter 1, Christ ascended, we are told, in verse 3, and sat down at the right hand on high. Christ sits next to the Father on the glorious throne. Earthly kings govern small little countries. Christ has a universal dominion. We are told from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, <clears throat> we are told that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess his kingship. In Revelation 19, verse 16, we are told that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Hebrews 1, 6, we are told that the angels worship him as king. Christ's glory and excellency is far above any of the majesty or the power of the White House or of 10 Downing Street 
for anything that Xi Jinping has in China or Putin has in Moscow, these powers are nothing compared to the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. Earthly kings, says Abrakel, have little power and they seek to defend themselves and their people, but sometimes they're conquered by others. But Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is almighty. He has all power in heaven and on earth. Psalm 24 says that the Lord is strong and mighty. The Lord is mighty in battle. Nobody is going to overthrow Christ. Did you notice in Psalm 2 that the the reaction of God in verse 4, when he saw the people rebelling in verses 1 through 3, was to scoff at them. He knows these earthly kings cannot overthrow him or his son. They are way too small. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel, maybe you say, in the book of Genesis, and how the nations came together and they tried to build a tower that would go all the way up into heaven. You remember that, boys and girls? And you remember what God's response to that tower was? The Bible says, Moses tells us that God had to come down to look at it. (laughs) Here, man thought they were building the greatest of all skyscrapers. This will reach to heaven itself. And if we do this, we'll be able to do anything. And God says, let us come down and see this thing. That's what it says roughly in the Hebrew. Let us come down and see this tiny little tower that they think is so great. Earthly kings also can be cruel and harsh towards their subjects. But Jesus Christ is a gracious king. In Zechariah chapter 9, Jesus is described as being gracious, gentle, faithful, benevolent. He's a savior. Earthly kings die. And when an earthly king dies or goes into exile, or is deposed by another, they cease to be a king. And all their purposes come to an end, we're told in Psalm 146. But Christ has been raised from the dead to live forever. There's no way he can be deposed, no way he can be sent into exile, there's no way that he can die. He is going to be king forever and ever. Well, let me bring it to a close here. By application, what what do we take away from the kingship of Jesus Christ? Well, let me give you a few final thoughts as we go uh, home tonight. First of all, we need to remember that Christ's kingdom, as Jesus has said, is not of this world. It is far superior to this world. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Christ's kingdom, first and foremost, we are told, is is spiritual in nature. It it doesn't run, it doesn't operate the way earthly kingdoms do. Earthly kingdoms operate by power and by might and by intrigue and by money and by weaponry and all these things. Christ's kingdom operates by the Spirit of God working through the Word and then using those that He's called to Himself and sending them out to tell others about Jesus Christ. We come not so much as conquerors by might and by force, but we come as servants. Even as Jesus came into the world not to be served, but to serve, we as Christians, we go out into the world 
to build the kingdom of Christ. But we build it in a completely different way than the world tries to do it. We go and we seek to love others. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We seek to serve. We seek to um, witness to Christ as God gives us opportunity. And through those means, the Lord builds his church. The blessings also of the kingdom are primarily spiritual. The kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul says, is not principally of meat and drink, but it is what? Righteousness, peace in the Holy Ghost. It is spiritual blessings first and foremost. And how do we conquer? We use the Bible. Remember Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Our weaponry, the only piece of weaponry given to the church that is offensive in nature. Remember, the armor of God is defensive primarily, but there is one offensive piece that is given and mentioned by the Apostle Paul, and that is the sword of the Spirit. And that is the Scriptures, the Bible. The Bible, we are told, is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible pierces to joint and marrow. And so our warfare is not a carnal warfare. It is, it is a warfare uh, that is mighty through God, through His Spirit, and through the Scriptures. That is the way that the Lord Jesus Christ builds His kingdom. Now, let me say this, uh, just also, we need to talk a little bit, and we'll talk more when we get to the uh, chapter in the Westminster Confession on, on the civil magistrate. But Abrakel reminds us that the church does not rule over the state, and that the state does not rule over the church. These are two distinct entities that are to be side by side, but both under the Lord Jesus Christ. So that in Romans chapter 13, we see that the civil magistrate is called a diakonos of God, a servant of God. Now, they may not acknowledge themselves to be servants of God, and they'll have to give an account for that to God one day, but... The Bible says, nevertheless, civil magistrates are, whether it's a mayor, whether it's a congressman or a senator, a United States president, they are deacons of God. They are to uphold righteousness and justice. And uh, one of the purposes for that is so that the church can continue to spread around the world. But the state is not to tell the church what to do. The church doesn't, the state doesn't tell us who to ordain. The state can't tell us who can become a member of the church and who's not to be a member of the church. The state doesn't control the sacraments. All of that, the keys of the kingdom, belong to the church. But also, the church is not ruling over the state here. Now, the the church may uh, admonish the state. The church uh, may gather together to counsel the state. The state may seek the wisdom of the church collectively on certain matters, but uh, the church is not to rule over the the state. Um, Let me um, close just uh, with these final applications. First of all, what should you do and I do? One is this. We all need to know and acknowledge Jesus Christ as our king. Um, We says a broccoli, he says, wherever love for this king is active, there will be exceptional light, clarity, and delight within the soul. You will be blessed if you take Jesus Christ as your king. Your soul, says a broccoli, exalts him above all. 
and has a high esteem for his majesty, which is delightful and awe-inspiring and stirs up extraordinary reverence. And so own Jesus Christ as your king if you've never done so before. Follow him. Secondly, obey him. Obey his voice in the word. As we saw this morning, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but give yourself to the reading of the Bible, searching of the scriptures, because this is where the king makes his mind known to us. Thirdly, trust him. You can put your trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has given himself for you and me. He has loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if he has done that, will he not ultimately give you all things according to his will? He has already given you his best. We can trust him for everything else in life. And then finally, imitate him as a king. We are told that uh, in Revelation 1.6, he hath made us kings. In Revelation 5.10, he hath made us unto our God as kings, and we shall reign on the earth. Uh, we are a royal priesthood, the idea of kingship and priests coming together as believers. Uh, this means one day believers will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. One day history is coming to an end. We don't know when, but we do know that God has designated a day in history when he will send the king back. And the king will come, not as he came the first time. In the first occasion, Jesus came by way of humiliation, suffering, riding a donkey. When he comes again, he's going to come in glory, majesty, power. Every eye will behold him, and we will see him in all his majesty and power and glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight's lesson and pray, Lord, that your spirit would bless us as we meditate on your son as king. We pray that we do so for Christ's sake. Amen.